My brothers and sisters, a very good morning to you. Thankful to be together yet again in this Advent season and uh, wonderful to interact uh, here a bit this morning and uh, just uh, thankful for the hope that we have in what God has done in Jesus. And, you know, I think that these upcoming months, you know, are going to be very challenging for a lot of people we know. Uh, that this could be a very hard winter uh, for many friends and family members that it's been a long uh, nine months with this virus. Folks are fatigued and, and fed up and feel there's, you know, I mean, you know, we're all, we're all swimming in the same, same stream, so to speak. And I say we can look at that and just be very frustrated, which, which perhaps we are, but we must keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus and see this as a, a real opportunity for the church in, in, uh, in these times. You think about what we're experiencing brings us a lot closer to the New Testament world than what we would have thought a year ago in Avon. You know, where there's a time, there's uncertainty and, and a virus and, and all these difficulties to say, you know what, God's people, this is our time to say, look, we have hope in Jesus. We know he's in control. We want to love each other well and keep pointing the way forward. So I hope that in the midst of these challenging times, we're able to move forward, and more than that, to be the example that we're called to be as those who are in Jesus, secure in him, and who are loved by him, and really celebrate him. So I've not done a great job of this and at 9.30. In fact, I've never done it once, but uh, we, all those watching at home uh, know you're loved. I've always thought of us as, as one church family, and we do uh, anticipate the day when we're all able to be together again, but know we think about you and pray for you and that the staff is here and uh, really just, uh, again, one church family, one covenant community. By way of announcements, Christmas Eve services, obviously December 24th, they'll be at 4 and 6 p.m. The 4 p.m. will be live stream, so if you want, and then they'll be available, you can watch it from about 5 o'clock. We'll just put it uh, right on there for you. So Christmas Eve services, 4 and 6, the 4 will be live stream again. I know registration is a, is a challenge. However, that is just uh, to ensure distance. So Christmas Eve services, uh, note those times and when the live stream will be. Secondly, our Christmas initiative, uh, way to go, that we're almost uh, at $34,000, so well done. We had a, a goal, firstly, to get to that $25,000 for an ultrasound machine at Cornerstone Pregnancy Services. Then we wanted to do another ten dollars uh, to the city mission to uh, refurbish uh, a house for a family. And then beyond that, we'll be sending uh, resources to our missionaries in uh, central, our missionary partners in Central Asia for uh, resources to go to Syrian refugees in Turkey. So again, in the midst of a pandemic, you've been such a generous church family, and I'm thankful we're able to uh, serve these other ministries and, and even hopefully other parts of the globe as well. So good job. That's the update on the Christmas initiative. Next week, December 20th, we'll note that there's limited child care, just uh, what we do around Christmas time. So we'll have nursery through, nursery through pre-K uh, Sunday school, but uh, above that, kindergarten and everyone will be in here together, which we, we tend to like um, at Christmas time anyway. December 27th, this, one, this one's, uh, I'd say, quite crucial that we all get. So, you know, I hope by this time we do all we can to have in-person services. Um, but on the 27th, what we'll do is that we'll go all live stream that one Sunday. Uh, the reason that is, is really as a, a, a gift to our volunteers and our staff. 
So we've moved to three uh, services on a Sunday to spread everybody out. Uh, the child care volunteers were quite attenuated in that area, uh, thinned out. And so this is really to say around uh, Christmas, what we'll do is we'll just go all live stream on the 27th. So just a few of us will be here at 930. And then, of course, that service will be available. And then what we'll do the first week in January, come back to this format. So again, please, if, if you have any questions uh, about that, I'd, I'd love to try to answer them. So we'll, we'll have a service on the 27th. It'll just be all electronic that day and then uh, move back to the in-person uh, the first week of January. Uh, we also get to celebrate yet another new member here, uh, Joshua David Paulson. So born back in August, we've been waiting to have him on the screens. Uh, Meredith and Dan, his parents, as you can imagine, are quite thrilled as his, his older brother Noah. And we, uh, again, God giving new life uh, to see the great miracle of birth and, and a new family, uh, new family. A new person uh, in our church, in our covenant community. So those things being said, I pray that we're able to sing out uh, to worship uh, the Lord and all his majesty. So if Pastor Ian, you'd call us to worship. Well, church, good morning. Let's uh, stand together, prepare our hearts, be reminded of the reason for our joy. Father, we do thank you that you are not far off, but Lord, you have drawn very near, Lord, not just in thought, um, but in truth, you have sent Christ Jesus, your only Son, begotten, not made. He is co-eternal with you. He is your image, the exact imprint of your nature, and he lived before you a life perfect in every way, following you and obeying you and always pleasing you. He was the perfect man. But also being God, he lifted himself up on a cross, taking our shame, taking our sin, crucifying it once for all, being regarded by you as the chief of sinners. And all of the blame directed upon him, the Holy One. And we thank you, Lord, that he not only bowed his head and gave up his spirit and died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose. And he appeared to many brothers and sisters, proclaiming them shalom, peace. And Father, we thank you that he now is ascended and he reigns with you. Everything that comes to pass is by his good hand. And so, Lord, help us to take heart Help us to worship. Help us to take joy in this one whom you sent, God the Son. We praise you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.
Sing low, whose forms are many low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Look now for glad and golden hours, come swiftly on the way. chapter 5 ESV. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into the land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of, Nim land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. And from Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure of offering him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we humbly gather at the foot of your throne this morning to worship you and to hear your holy word, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and minds and help us to focus on you and the message you have for us this morning. We thank you for your perfect will and your perfect timing. You know exactly what we need and when we need it. And we confess that we have let stress and other things distract us from our relationship with you. Thank you for not giving up on us and for the perfect gift of your son as a sacrifice and complete payment for our sin. Give us boldness to share the good news of Christmas with everyone that we meet. We ask that you would put your healing hand on those who are ill, and we pray specifically for the healthcare workers and those who are helping those, those who are affected by COVID-19. Give them strength, endurance, and keep them healthy. All of this we pray in your holy, precious, and powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, let's stand again and sing of our rest that we have in Christ. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us so from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Yeah. 
Why the three candles these Sundays leading up to Christmas? And we, of course, as Christ followers, would believe these events to be not only just interesting here uh, for us for a celebration, but rather the pivotal event of all history. Uh, that, that'd be an interesting exercise, wouldn't it, to ask maybe a non-Christian friend. You say, what's the focal point of all history? And I wonder how many would say God coming to be in the person of the Lord Jesus, coming among us, right, in the person of his son to take on human likeness. And you see, to bolster this point, that what we've been doing this Advent is looking at a series of 8th century B.C. prophets, that two weeks ago we looked at Hosea, so active about 750 BC, and then we looked at Amos last week and today Micah, all three more or less contemporaries. And what we noted about them is that their primary responsibility is to have God's people, the Israelites, pay attention to God. Hey, folks, we're off track here, they're saying. Can't, can't you see? We're, we're plowing through as if there's no God at all. We need to pay attention to him and re- repent of our sin, that we've got to follow him. That's what their primary responsibility is. But intermixed with those messages to the people in the 8th century, that what we've noticed is that there, there are promises hanging out there. So, the, the, in other words, the prophets are saying, we've got we to gotta turn back to God now. And, and this goes on at some length. And then they'll say, but don't we all know that there's going to be a restoration of the throne of David? That somebody's going to come in the future. They're going to make all things right. In fact, oh, there's going to be a reckoning that they're going to draw. He's going to draw the people back into himself. And that promise is left hanging there. And we have had a saying, you're very tired of me saying this by now, it's, I've just cut and pasted it three weeks in a row on the notes, and I think it's a very good way of thinking about what's happening in our Bibles. And the saying is this, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And again, we've unpacked that a bit and say, what do we mean? Well, again, the Old Testament is obviously directed towards an an immediate audience, that is the 8th century B.C., uh, in our case today, the 8th century B.C. Israelites in both the northern ten tribes and down in Judah and the two southern tribes. That's the immediate audience, and they're to repent, to pay attention to their maker. But then we say, well, what about the promises? You know, like any promise, you wonder when it's going to have its fulfillment, right? I mean, a lot of us, you say you, you know children in your life, and there's, this, uh, there's maybe presents under the tree, and you say it's in anticipation. They know on the morning of the 25th that they'll be able to, you know, it's something that's there, but it's not yet realized, but there's a date as to when it's realized. The Old Testament promises are a bit like that. When's this restoration going to happen? 
When's the throne of David going to be reestablished? When are all the nations going to come to know the true God? When is there going to be a reckoning and justice? When's that going to happen? And say, of course, those of us then who are Christians, you say, well, we, we have our New Testaments, right? The celebration of God breaking in in Jesus, right? The, 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 the promises are fulfilled. We say, oh, when Hosea in chapter 11 said that there's going to be an ingathering and a restoration of, of a relationship with his people as a father and a son, and, and a person's going to do this, we say, oh, this is what Jesus does. And last week we read Amos chapter 9. You say, well, after all this judgment, there's going to be one who comes on the throne of David and restores it. Who's going to do it? Well, well there it is. It's, it's, it's Jesus, right? And the New Testament then makes these promises clear. And that's what we celebrate here at Advent, that this is the long-expected king. It's not, you know, God's kind of random plan, but really the full arc of history comes into focus. Say, here's the promise, and God has delivered in Jesus, and we celebrate that. And so Micah, our, again, the, the minor prophet we'll turn to today, and by minor prophet, so Hosea, Amos, and Micah would all be in this group we call the minor prophets. That's not because they're inferior people or even that they're, they're less significant. We, what we mean by minor prophet is that what's been preserved of their ministries is shorter than who we call the major prophets. So if you read something like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, say these are very long books. Uh, that's the major prophets. There's a lot of material there. Whereas Hosea and Amos and Micah are relatively short. And I suppose a, a, one of my many motivations in doing this series at Advent is to hopefully have all the church to read the Minor Prophets uh, over this season, say it's something that's very manageable, but to get into the Bible and say, well, I don't know, when am I ever going to read Micah or Amos? Say, now's a wonderful time to see God's both direction to his covenant community, to pay attention to him, to be obedient, to repent, but also to look at these future promises. So Micah... Micah's job description is a lot like Hosea and Amos's, like any prophet. It's a, it's a hard calling. And I think we get it most directly in Micah chapter 3 and verse 8. So here's what he says. He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, you say, we again just gloss over this line, say this is a very hard calling. Because in Israel at this time, it's a time of great prosperity. That the business class is doing quite well. They have multiple homes. Uh, they're, you know, getting wealthier and wealthier. And what Micah's called to do, again, like these other minor prophets, is to say, you know what? We have forgotten our God. That we're using our positions to do things that, that really disappoint God rather than exalt him. We're, we, we're on very dangerous territory here. That they're guilty of idolatry that they've taken the God of the Bible and they've started to wor you know, worship uh, idols instead or they've practiced syncretism, right? That they've mixed uh, some other religions into what God has uh, told us the truth about himself, that the, these uh, business owners are taking bribes and consequently they're plundering those who are not so well off. There are great injustices in the land. They're taking advantage of each other's property. They're misusing their bodies. Basically, all the things that God said, this is how my people are to live, they're saying, we don't need that. We're doing great. And Mike is saying, we've got to come back to the truth. And God is just. You say, in this series, we've looked at that these great attributes of God demonstrated at Christmas, haven't we? Say, Hosea, about God's love. 
And last week, Amos, about God's righteousness, his perfectly just character, that we worship a God who's uh, worthy enough to, because he judges our sin. So today, what would Micah have us think about? But I think that the rule of God, really the authority and the leadership of God, that's what he'd have us think about. Because one of the major issues behind, again, their phony religion and their idolatry is the behavior of those who are in leadership positions those who are influencing God's people. So that's point number one. Really, the problem in Micah's day, on top of all the others that I mentioned, is that the bad leadership is creating a crisis in their land. I'm going to read from chapter 3 and verse 1, and listen to this. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at the time because they have made their deeds evil. Now you read something like that and you say, wow, that's a bit overblown. I mean, gosh, that's some really graphic language there. Say, I say, make no mistake about it. That when God puts people in positions of influence, those who are supposed to be representing him, and instead of using that position to point people towards the Lord and to behave in such a way that's worthy or in accordance with him, that when those offices are abused to take advantage of people, it's as if they're grinding them up. I mean, the language here, let's face it, is cannibalistic. It's torture. That God is really, really fed up with those who are in positions of, of leadership and influence who use those offices to do not-so-good things. If you go back one chapter to chapter two, he's going to now direct, say, the heads of Jacob and the rulers of Israel, but what about the phony prophets, right? Those who are the, the so-called, you know, the clerical class. How about chapter two and verse 11? If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. Now that verse, don't get me wrong, that, that verse is, is not about wine. It's not about alcohol. We've missed the point if we made it about that. What's that verse about? Is that the people have come to uh, want to be told what makes them feel good rather than the truth about God. Here comes a known preacher, right? He says he's preaching a message that's going to say, this is what makes my people feel good. Look, they're cheering him on. What we don't need is that message of judgment, what we don't need is that message to, hey, pay attention to God. You know, we've not, uh, we, you know, have we got all this by just being outsmarted all the rest? Or have we got this because God has been gracious and kind to us and that we want to recognize him? That's the idea here. Do we have people that prefer, prefers lies and things that make us feel good to what God would say would be the truth about our hearts? How about chapter 2 and verse 6? Notice the quotations. Do not preach thus they preach one should not preach of such things disgrace will not overtake us in other words Micah's contemporaries right Mike is teaching judgment hey God is a just judge he's the real ruler we're way off base here what the other preachers are saying is Micah we don't need that message uh, we, we, we're not going to be judged look at us doing fine the folks in the suburbs we're good people we're not doing anything really bad and Micah would say well look out that these rulers these leaders, 
this clerical class has abused their offices in such a way that is really damaging God's people. And I think it really comes down to chapter 3 and verse 2, which I read a moment ago, right? That they have learned to hate the good and love the evil. That they've inverted the moral order. That it would seem as that everything that God would say is good and commendable, they'd say, well, that's not right. You know, we don't want to do that. That's evil or, you know, whatever it would be. And everything that God would say would be out of bounds that they've kind of said, well, this is a great thing. In fact, it could be championed. And I don't know about you, but I... I, I have lived in a time and space like all of you but it sure seems like we've got a major leadership crisis right now you know you ask the question say who would be somebody that's on a you know at all a kind of national platform or at least a regional platform we'd say you know i'd really like my kid to emulate you know emulate that behavior and you notice it's not just it's not just the political class but the, the scary part for us is that this this kind of thing comes into the church all the time that we want to be on guard to say those who are in positions of leadership all too easily start to use those offices and that influence to do all kinds of things that, that disobey God and we can pat ourselves on the back in that position or we can say, you know what, God is just and he's really concerned about how we influence other people and how easily it does happen. You know, I have, um, my grandmother was a longtime resident of Bedford we have strong ties to Bedford. I was born in Bedford Hospital, spent a lot of my childhood there. And I remember, uh, you know, really when I was a boy, the mayor of Bedford Heights was a, a man from their own soil, a man by the name of Jimmy DeMora. And uh, Jimmy was, a, again, longtime mayor, went on to be the Cuyahoga County Commissioner. And now you, you probably have read in the papers, he's in the middle of a very long sentence in federal prison, 28 years or something, for bribes and racketeering. And why do I bring this up? Because I remember when things got bad for Jimmy, uh, still the old ladies that I knew in Bedford, right, that they would say, well, we love Jimmy. We remember when he was, you know, just a, a boy in the neighborhood. He'd come over to play. I mean, we remember having these conversations. You know, what happened to him? And he'd say, I think that's a lesson to us, that we think we can handle recognition and wide influence, and that if we don't check ourselves and stay focused on God and on Jesus, that we too go off the rails, Christian, non-Christian, that if we let it go to our heads, that we're so easy to fall into this kinder pattern and say, well, what's good and evil? I think I'll define it for myself, just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis, which I looked for a few weeks ago. I can use my position to take advantage of others. I can even fall into the trap of telling people what I know they want to hear rather than what the truth is about God, that I don't want to be too, too realistic about the God of the Bible and things like that. How easy we fall into that trap. And make there be no mistake about it. Say this kind of bad, selfish leadership, there's a real price to pay. Now you're saying now, I think you're saying, well, I get it. You know, we're not Cuyahoga County commissioners here. And, you know, we're not well-known Christians. But, um, you know, so what does this have to do with me? I actually think that every person in this room or listening on the screen exercises some leadership in life. And if not now, you will or you have. That if you think about leadership as influence say it's all over the place that some of us have we were leaders in our work right we're leaders in business or we're leaders of a family or we're put in charge of looking after others you say it's very it's very hard i think at some point to envision a life where we don't have any influence at all say god's entrusted us with some responsibilities to look after people to have some influence on them how are we using that position that god's given us to point to him rather than to look to ourselves you know, this crisis in leadership, 
We've learned this lesson, I think, primarily in the 20th century, so I think a lot of people would agree, say, yeah, the people who have a lot of power, you know, they really, uh, they, they're really off. I mean, you know, the whole, you know, we've had enough of experts, that kind of language. I think there's a very common sentiment that leaders often let us down, and they do. They let us, they let us down often. So one solution to this in people's mind is to create something uh, where there are no leaders at all. And you say, well, actually, we can't arrive at leaderlessness, that this has been tried, right, in the communist regimes of the 20th century. So they say, yeah, we can't have, you know, some people exercising influence over others disproportionately, so what we need is a perfectly egalitarian structure, but what happened? That those who imposed that egalitarian structure became the most powerful people at all, of all. You know, Orwell, I think, no one captures this idea better than Orwell and Animal Farm. You remember the pigs that are in control? You remember that line? He says, all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. You see, that's what happens. We try to go for leaderlessness. Okay, let's just pretend we're all, you know, there's not that much influence. We don't want a hierarchy. We don't want to be telling other people what to do. Isn't this, you know, a very modern thing to do? Say, well, we can't arrive at leaderlessness because we're all in structures, we're all in social organizations. We all want to know where the buck stops, that God's entrusted us in certain positions, right? What we call intermediary institutions, be it the church or our families. Say, we can't get around being an influencer. The only question we have is, are we going to be God-like leaders and influencers? Or are we going to be selfish ones like in Micah's day? And is there an example? Do we have any power to do it? And you know, friends, all leaders are imperfect. You know, I wonder what's going on in the minds. I very much, it's very much troubled me this year about the, um, you know, the toppling of, of statues of people who've played an important part in our history. And I just sometimes want to ask those young people as I watch them as you do, say, what's going on in the mind in the toppling of the statues? And I think that it's some kind of a purity test for leadership. You know, well, this person, you know, did this wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of good and influence there, but they did this thing wrong, and down they come. And I'd just like to say, is this, uh, again, for if I ever have these kinds of interactions, say, how do you get on at what's going on in there? And I say, you know what? I'm often disappointed in some leaders, too. But nobody passes the purity test, save one who I think the Bible talks about. So ladies and gentlemen, bad leadership, bad influencing, when we use the positions God's given us to point people to him and we decide to use that influence to point to ourselves and to just tell people what they want to hear and use what we have to, 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 to take advantage of other people, say it's going to end very badly. But we can't get around leadership. We must aim at good godly leadership. And all of us this side of heaven are imperfect and we need an example. So enter... Micah's promise. So again, Micah, for most of his books, so we read a little bit, chapters 2, chapter 3, you see what's happening there. The rulers are way out of bounds. They're not representing God well. So this is the 8th century listener. This is what he's hearing. Like there's, you know, judgment coming. That's, you know, 750 BC. That's what they're hearing. But then notice what we read today in chapter 5 of Micah. Here we go again. One of these very odd signposts. Micah chapter 5, verse 1 is the judgment. Then it pivots to chapter 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There it is. You see, it's a promise. 
wait a second, what, what's the first listener hearing? You say, okay, I got the judgment part. Our leaders are way off base. But wait a second, here's a promise, a signpost that there's gonna be a ruler who comes. Now, what about this ruler? What about this future ruler? Point number one, notice his origins. That what is unmistakable about him is where he's gonna come from. That he's gonna come from Bethlehem. Now, I guess there was another Bethlehem in a place called Zebulun, which was a more well-known Bethlehem, but that's why there's an Ephrathah. Uh, That is to make us understand that this is not the better-known Bethlehem. This is the obscure Bethlehem. So obscure is this location, and you can't have time to do this now. You say, go this week sometimes to Joshua chapter 15 and verse 20. And you read Joshua chapter 15, verse 20, read all the way to verse 60. There's 40 verses where the author is naming all the small towns of Judah. And you know in that long laundry list of small towns in Judah, this Bethlehem doesn't even make the list. That this is a very obscure place. And by obscure, I don't mean that we have contempt for that, not in the least. I just mean that it was not a well-known town. But one thing's for sure, that Micah is unambiguous, that but you, Bethlehem, from this place, a ruler will come forth. You know, I think about this often, what we might associate this with. Say, Many of us in the room, you say you know where Columbus is. We've probably all been to Columbus. But I wonder how many would know where New Concord is. Uh, For one academic term, I taught church history at Muskingum University, and so I got to drive down there, and I'd come through a little town called Cambridge, and then over into New Concord, and you say, New Concord, there's not much there. Uh, Many have been to Columbus, not many to New Concord, and that's a little bit of the idea here, and I'll come back to that in a moment. So you say you have major-known cities like Jerusalem and lesser-known places like Bethlehem and Ephrathah, but this is where the leaders to come from. Uh, to come from. Now, the one thing, the one thing this Bethlehem's known for is that it was the birthplace of David. That this is their one claim to fame. You know, again, 250 or so years before Micah, maybe closer to 300 years before Micah, David is born in Bethlehem, and that's its one claim to fame. And so it was a bit like when I would drive into New Concord, as soon as I'd cross over the city lines, there would be great signs, and it would, it would say, the home of John Glenn. That John Glenn, the first man to orbit the earth, was born, or at least born close by in Cambridge, would spend most of his life there, went to Muskingum in New Concord, say, this is the one, you know, this is the one figure a lot of people have heard from who's from this place. That's a bit like Bethlehem. It's a small place. No one had heard of it, but there's this one little blip on the historical radar that David, the great king, happened to be born there. But this future ruler is also going to be born there. And you know, one more thing about Bethlehem. You notice how Bethlehem's personified that it's given human-like qualities here. So, but you, O Bethlehem, that it, it takes on the likeness of a person. And I think what's going on in Micah and in chapter 5 here is that we're to see the great idea of reversal that any Christian is familiar with. That when you go back and read Micah this week, you say, yes, Jerusalem and Samaria, the great cities, that they're going to be wiped out because they've forgotten their God. Say all the great buildings and all the great learned people in the university towns, you say they're going to be wiped out for forgetting God. But you, O Bethlehem, you're going to be raised up. And say this theme runs straight through the Bible. That the second we puff out our chests, we say, look at how great we're doing. 
we're not going to be judged, right? Micah, like the people in Micah day, we're not going to be judged. We're doing fine. Look at this. You say, the second we do that, know that God will humble us. And those who faithfully are attentive to God and obedient to God, though might be obscure in human minds now, God's very clear they're going to be raised up. And so it is with this Bethlehem that we've sung about this Bethlehem hundreds of times the last couple weeks. We're gonna sing about it hundreds more times in the next couple weeks. We're gonna do the same thing next year, that this obscure Bethlehem has indeed been raised up. And in this time, God's major cities, they were humbled because they forgot him. And that's the truth for us as people, just as Bethlehem is personified, so that truth comes to us. We puff out our chest, think we're doing great. Be careful, God will humble us. But if we faithfully walk and are dependent on him, that we don't try to make a name for ourselves, that God then one day will raise us up to be with him. That's the truth. So that's Bethlehem. This ruler is going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, Make no doubt about it. Now, here you're thinking, well, Micah must be very confused. Because this future king, this future ruler who's born in Bethlehem, right, that this is very clearly something that is supposed to be coming in the future, which is why it's a promise, We also know that this ruler's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What in the world is Micah talking about? How do we make any sense of this at all? The future kings to be from Bethlehem, but also be from of old, from the ancient days. Now, if you look at this phrase, from of old, elsewhere in the Bible, you say it's always uh, attributed to a characteristic of God himself. So have a read of Proverbs 8 and verse 22. We say God's wisdom is from of old. Even in our own book here, if you read uh, chapter 7 and verse 14 or chapter 7 and verse 20, right, that there are aspects of God that we're told is from of old. In Habakkuk 1.12, Habakkuk 1.12, the same phrase is used, that there's a characteristic of God that's from of old. In fact, all of our versions, though, in Habakkuk 1.12, translate this phrase everlasting. That we say, well, when was God without his wisdom? We know his wisdom was from of old, but doesn't that mean that God, God must have always had his wisdom in Proverbs 8, 22? And in Habakkuk 1, 12, where we get the word everlasting, you say it's about an attribute of God, but what must it mean for a person to be from of old? You see, whenever this phrase is used, it's never used of a person. And where it is used, it seems to be used of an attribute or something that God must have always possessed. Say, I ask you, what is Micah saying? The future leader is going to be born from a really obscure place. The only thing about that place is that's where David was born too. But this future leader is from of old, from ancient days, which what we know about this phrase is as if he's everlasting. It's as if Micah wants to depict this future ruler as a kind of God-man. Someone born in obscurity and time and place, but also from ancient days as if he's everlasting from God himself. Mike is predicting a God-man to come. How in the world are we going to ever fulfill that? See, friends, this, Israel, this ruler of Israel has special origins, very clear about where he's to be from, and also the claim that he's from of old. Now, I just pause here to say, you think about this, you're not a Christian. And, uh, you know, you've glossed over this Christmas story many times. I say, does it not even give you a moment's pause to think about the extraordinary nature of this particular promise and the fact that we'll spend more time in a moment thinking about, and that is that Jesus' immediate followers who were all Jewish were convinced that he's the one that this pointed to. 
And I hope again that again, whatever you make of the Christmas story, that at least there's a hesitation here to say, you know what, this is a very specific promise. And the people around Jesus who knew him the best, they seem to think this fit him. The future leader has special origins. What else about this leader? Let's go to chapter five and verse four. So Micah chapter five, verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, and now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This future ruler can only be described as a shepherd king. You see how he's both a shepherd and an authoritative figure. Now, what do we know about shepherds? You say, this is not a glamorous job that you're down there kind of in the, in the mud and in the weeds, so to speak, that you're outside all the time, uh, you know, you're, you're down with the animals. You say, one thing we know about, I mean, shepherding's a hard calling. You don't know if this was something, you know, was this a, a job everybody would sign up for or strive for? It doesn't seem to be the case, but rather, what did the shepherd do? That the shepherd would feed the sheep. He'd look after them. He'd get down there among them, right? That the shepherd would, dare we say, smell like the sheep, that it's a kind of humble job where you knew the people, or at least the, the, in this case, the animals you were looking after, that was your charge to look after them, to feed them, to take care of them. And while on the one hand, this figure is a shepherd who knows the sheep, he's also an authoritative figure. Make no doubt about it. He's not just the poor chap that's got the job, you know, staying out with the flock all night, but no, he's robed in majesty. He's the very embodiment of God that he's going to bring all the nations to justice, right? All the ends of the earth are going to come to him. And of course, peace on the ear would have hit any ear as militaristic that this is a figure to be reckoned with, a real authority, that he's a shepherd king. And you know why I love this idea of the future ruler being the shepherd king? Is because if you look at human leadership, very rarely, if ever, ever, are these two aspects held together in a person. You say, we've known leaders who actually, you could, you could say that they're pretty good shepherds. I mean, they, they know the people they're looking after. They, they, they've read, you know, they're, they're inclined to read the books, to have the right conversations. You get the impression they really do care about me. This is a nice place to work. I mean, this, this person's influence, I mean, there, there's high compassion, but sometimes that personality being highly pastoral, which is what the mean shepherd means, highly pastoral personalities actually have a, a very difficult time making decisions because they, they want everyone to like them. They say, well, I, I love that person too much to make a decision on the direction because I know that, that this direction is going to disappoint them. And you have a leader that's frozen, high, highly pastoral, a great shepherd, really good with the people. He really cares, but he can't lead. And then the other side of it, you say, you know a lot of examples on the other side of the divide too. You say, that person has no problem making a decision. I mean, that is uh, very clear. There's a direction and you get on. Or you, but, but what happens then is there can actually be, feel like very little care for the people they're overseeing. He's kind of a strong man. You know where this kind of dichotomy came out for me, and you can think of any leader, I'm kind of running through this grid, but there was a wonderful study done on Herbert Hoover and FDR, two presidents, right, contemporaries, and Hoover was a really likable guy, that he was the son of a blacksmith, that he was, uh, went off to Stanford, one of the first classes, kind of a self-made man. He was congenial. He was a great humanitarian. Uh, Hoover was like a really good guy, but you know what? He, he was a very bad president, 
because he couldn't make a decision. The crises that the country were facing, he was not up for the task. A really nice guy whose presidential legacy is not that great because he, didn't, he couldn't make the tough decision. Contrast with FDR. See, FDR made some tough decisions. Whatever you make of him, you say he really drove the country forward. He had no problem, again, taking that authority and developing things and taking the country in a direction. Obviously, we still feel his pulse on the country. FDR, strong, but some would say a bit prideful. You see, I see in Hoover and FDR precisely this dichotomy that runs straight down through the middle of leadership between the pastor and the authoritative figure. But this king, he's the shepherd king. Who's it going to be? How's this future ruler going to understand his people, but also exercise a just authority? You know, this future leader, it seems to be a very embodiment of the Lord God himself, that he's going to bring security, he's going to bring peace. You even keep reading in chapter 5 that he's going to purify his people. Oh, friends, if only a leader would exist, as Micah would describe him. Born in Bethlehem, from everlasting, loves the people and feeds them, but also is the clear ruler of all who will judge the nations. Who's that leader? We skip ahead to Matthew's gospel, don't we? Matthew would take up his pen, and there's a discussion of kingship here, who the real king is. So chapter 2 and verse 1, we have Herod the king, who's the Roman puppet king. So he's the temporary kind of fill-in to appease the people. So we're told that Herod is the king. But then verse 2, right? That the Magi come, where is the king of the Jews? Then in chapter th- or verse 3 of chapter 2, that Herod the king. Then in verse 4 is the Christ, which is Israel's anointed king. That I think one thing Matthew wants us to think about here is who's the real king? Is it the earthly puppets? The people who are corrupt and paranoid, which Herod, everything that we know about Herod from extra-biblical sources is that he was paranoid, that he was corrupt, that he would do the Roman bidding. Is that the kind of leader? Is that the king? Or is it this little baby, this little child? And you know what Matthew takes up? He takes up Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You see it there? Matthew chapter 2, verse 6 is Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, In the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Say, there it is. What did Matthew do? He went back 750 years, and he said, you know this shepherd king, born in Bethlehem from of old? Here he is. The promise has been fulfilled. That he's the one, right? He's the one who's going to rule us and to to be our authority, but also to feed us and be our shepherd and who's to know us. It's in Jesus himself. And back to this theme of the humble king ruling. You say tied up in one person. You say God in the form of a baby, right? Say ever so humble. And yet Jesus is the king of kings, the great victor, the one to whom every earthly authority will bow whether willingly or unwillingly, we all stand before him. You think of that dichotomy. God in his wisdom and in his kindness and in his mercy would say, look at how clear for us to see that he'd come in the form of a baby and grow up among us and leave a mark on history and inaugurate the church and reign on high. He's right there for us, but he's also the real ruler of the universe, the one who's pure. It struck me the other night how this has not been lost. Mallory and I were listening to Bach's Christmas Oratorio, well worth doing. And, you know, Bach at one point says, uh, 
the bass sings and you say, this is the very poor little baby, right? Who comes just there to be seen by everybody. And the next movement, the brass is reintroduced and he's majestic and he's high on judging. I say, that's it. That's exactly what Mike is going on about. We know who he is. We can see him. He's among us. He feeds us. And yet there he is on high to judge our rightful ruler. And you know, friends, as I think about this, you see even in Matthew's gospel how he's worshipped. We can go on about this in length, but these magi come to worship him. Only gods are worshipped in the ancient world. Very striking that these Gentiles would come and their first impulse would be to worship this being. Why? Because the immediately, immediate followers recognized him as the long-expected king. You know, if you're not a Christian, you have a lot of influence in your life. At some point, you're probably, you know, you can grow in influence. You say, you're going to be leading somebody. Say, who's your model for that? Just kind of winging it on your own. And I think there'd be some point where you'd say, you know, I really need not just an example, but I need an inner strength. I might want to surrender my life to one who can point me on the way. Who's the real leader? What about if you're not a Christian and you look out at the political scene or even, quite frankly, at the modern American church scene? You're like, How, what a depressing picture. I mean, what, what's going on? I mean, where, who's the, the real ruler that we can, who's a leader we, we can follow who would, you know, kind of one day deal with all this but also would, would know us and, and care about us? So I hope you see it's Jesus. There's nobody like him. We're gonna, pa- you know, make all the people of history or anybody in this room pass a purity test. You know, we're all gonna fail except for this one. And I hope, again, if you're not a Christian this Christmas, you'd say, you know what, there's something to Jesus that I don't see anywhere else, and quite frankly, he's the only hope that we have, and you'd entrust your life to him today. And for those of us who are Christians, say how easy it is to me, for me, to fall into a pattern like these leaders in Micah's day. Say, well, you know, I'm quite good at telling people what they want to hear. And uh, even if I'm compromised for doing so, that I'm going to kind of go that way. And, you know, quite frankly, opportunities to use the position that I have to take advantage of others, to cut the corners, you know, to say, well, this person's kind of, you know, beneath over here, and I can, you know, take advantage of them here. Say, may it never be. And at the very least, may we see if we're going to be those kinds of influencers, if we're saying we know Christ, we know Christ, and he's real for us, and we represent him, and we believe this, and we're going to exercise our influence to take advantage of other people, have a read of Micah 3. God says, he's going to judge that. Lord, help us to lead and influence in a way that represents you well. So friends, Hosea, the love of God, may it not be doubted at Christmas. He loves us so much as his people, even as we rebel, as Dan prayed. The judgment of God, that we worship a God who cares enough to judge our sin. He's perfectly just and righteous. That's Amos. And today, the rulership, the authority the leadership of God and Jesus, that he gives us an example and a strength to carry it out. I'll pray. Lord, thank you for Micah 2,700 plus years ago. And uh, you gave him the words to say there's going to be a future shepherd king born in an obscure place from of old who's going to draw in the nations. And here we are today in Avon from who knows how many backgrounds and how many countries and places of origin. Very few of us Israelites, that is ethnic Jews. And help us to see that you've actually fulfilled your promise and are on your way to fulfilling your promise. And in fact, your ruling in Christ is not just something that happened then, but it can be now in your people that we're your kingdom representatives, that the way we conduct our affairs, the way that we influence others is a way of 
bringing forth your kingdom. So Lord, help us to those ends. Help us to see Jesus as the pure leader. And however depressed we are at the current affairs of things or bad leadership examples, may that be a foil. May that just be so obvious to us, maybe perhaps even a gift to us to point us back to your son. May that truth not be lost this Christmas for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, let's stand together and sing to the humble king.
to God in the highest for what he's done in the form of that humble king. Then Pilate said to Jesus, so you're a king. And he answered him, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. May we listen to the voice of the humble king this week and always may we influence others for his sake, looking unto him not only as an example, but for strength to do so. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each of you until we shall meet again or until our blessed Savior Jesus Christ comes now and forevermore. Amen.
See the.